uh, not yet. Uh, today I'm preaching Romans 4, verses 13 to 25. We're going to focus mostly on verses 19 to 25. Fully assured, part two. I just want to make a few comments about assurance. First from just mundane, everyday life, and then from some biggies. It is very easy to lose assurance. That you're 100% sure of something, you're convinced, but then you lose that assurance. And it can happen in some very simple ways in life. Let's say that you are taking a test in school, okay? If some of you need to remember back, others of you are still in school, so you know what I'm saying. You take a test. Let's say it's a math test. And you are 100% sure that you aced the test, you get it back, and somehow you failed. You can't believe it. This actually uh, happened to one of my daughters recently, Savannah. She didn't fail the test, but she, was, she basically got all the answers right on the study guide, and then she takes the test and finds out she didn't do, do so well. And she's like, what happened? I was so confident in every problem. Well, it turns out she realizes that the, the calculator, her calculator was set on the wrong setting. So everything was off just a little bit. Lost that assurance. Or let's say on another mundane part of life, you're watching a football game. Now, we know that today is a national holiday, Super Bowl Sunday, right? You're watching a football game. Let's say it's last year's Super Bowl. And you're watching, and Atlanta is winning 28-3. to And you're thinking to yourself, no way can the Patriots come back, right? You're 100% sure of that. But they do. They shock the Falcons. Their fans lose assurance. But maybe it's something bigger. Maybe it's something much more serious. Maybe there's a relationship in your life that you think is invincible. Maybe your marriage. And you're convinced that nothing could split you apart. And all of a sudden, life goes on, and what once seemed healthy now starts to literally unravel and maybe even go down the drain, and you see no chance for reconciliation. You lose assurance. Or maybe it's the biggest thing of all. Maybe it's salvation. You're a professing believer in the Lord Jesus. You believe that he died for your sins on the cross, that he was buried, that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures, that he is seated at the right hand of God, reigning in power, that he is coming back again for those who love him. And you know the Bible tells you that you are 100% secure in Christ. That you have security, but you don't feel like it. You did at first when you first came to faith in Christ, but life got tough, things turned tough, and you realized that you actually sin on an ongoing basis. And you fail, and maybe people have treated you poorly, and somehow, some way, you wake up one day and you've lost your assurance of salvation. And you maybe think that God is reconsidering his choice of you. Maybe he'll cut you from the team. You feel like you're slipping. You feel like you're hanging by a thread. And insecurity creeps in. In fact, a lack of assurance attacks when you trust even 1% in your own goodness. That's when the lack of assurance creeps in and attacks. When you're trusting in your own goodness. And here's the point today. It's right here from Romans chapter 4. God wants you to be fully assured of his salvation promises. 
He wants you to be fully assured of his salvation promises so that you do not weaken in faith or waver in unbelief, but you grow strong in your faith and give glory to God. Straight from the passage. This is what happened in Abraham's life. He did not weaken in faith. I'm going to read it in just a moment. He did not weaken in faith. He did not waver in unbelief. But he grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. This is after making an Ishmael of things. His faith gets back on track, and that's good for us to know. It's good for us to know that there is hope and that we can reclaim confidence in Christ, that he is faithful, that he never changes, that he keeps his promises, and they're guaranteed. So if you're able, please stand with me. I'm going to read the Word of God. I'm going to read Romans chapter 4, verses 13 to 25. This is the inspired, inerrant, infallible word of God. It is perfect because God is perfect. Let's hear the word. For the promise to Abraham and to his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. The law brings wrath. Where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. In the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead jesus our lord who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification let's pray lord we thank you for your grace we thank you for your love we thank you for your presence with us now we pray that by your spirit you would use your word in our hearts to do the work that you desire we pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, please be seated. So here we are in Romans chapter 4, and what we're doing today really is closing out the first major section in Romans, these first four chapters. We're considering faith's dependence, faith's assurance, and I love it because as we just read in those last few verses, how personal God's salvation promises are. It's very, very personal. You notice it is about our faith, not just about Abraham's, it's about ours. The cross and the resurrection of Christ 
securing redemption. This is not just a historical reality, but this is a present-day fact to be enjoyed. That we can revel in these truths, that we can uh, be inspired by God to glad obedience, that we can be empowered by him uh, in ongoing perseverance. I mentioned this earlier in, in the series in Romans. We've been in this series for several months now, and we're going verse by verse through Romans. And I mentioned early on that Paul's goal was the obedience of faith. And you've got these bookends in Romans. Romans chapter 1, verse 5. Romans chapter 16, verse 26, where it speaks of the obedience of faith among the nations. The obedience of faith means trusting Jesus from start to finish in the Christian life. That you begin by faith and then you don't just, you know, go on your own and try to get to heaven, but you are trusting Jesus from start to finish in the Christian life, the obedience of faith. And what God wants to bring about is a church that trusts humbly as they're united in Christ and they boldly engage in gospel work. If you really boil Romans down, you would say it's about the obedience of faith and that God is bringing about a trusting church that is humbly united in Christ. And out of that humble, uh, united in Christ position, then that church boldly engages in gospel work. If you're not humbly united in Christ, you don't boldly go out with the gospel. And what Romans is showing us in these first four chapters is what does it mean to be justified by faith? We cannot underestimate the importance of this doctrine. Chapters 1 through 3 have shown us how futile it is to try to get right with God any other way. Paul literally demolishes every alternative to justification by faith. We have seen God's saving righteousness. In chapter 1, we see that God saves believers only and is rightly angry with the rest of the world. The gospel reveals God's righteousness, his rightness in saving and judging. We've seen mankind's total depravity on display in chapters 1 and also into chapter 2 and chapter 3. We're struck by how patient God is, that, that everyone... Uh, religious insiders who don't know Christ, irreligious outsiders who don't know Christ, are under sin's power, and that everyone needs Jesus. We have seen Christ's sufficient sacrifice. In Romans 3, we see that God saves everyone who believes. And the gospel is like shining like a diamond on black cloth. We have seen our free justification. When we come to chapter 4, And we see Abraham's life illustrate what was said in chapter 3. I'll give you a bit of a review on chapter 4. The first 12 verses, we saw that faith in Christ is counted as righteousness to all who believe. And then in verses 13 to 25, we're kind of in the midst of this now, the idea of being fully assured. God's salvation promises are guaranteed by grace. They are received through faith. Last week, we looked at part one. We looked at verses 13 to 18, how God's promises are sure, how our salvation in Christ is is secure. It's guaranteed fully. But we also saw the temptation that it is to walk by sight rather than faith. We saw that in Abraham's life, to try to get the promises in his own way and timing. You look back at 
Abraham's life, and you realize 10 years pass since the promise, and Abraham takes matters into his own hands and has Hagar bear Ishmael. As one writer put it, Ishmael is an error of his own sinful contriving, not the divinely promised and provided heir that only Sarah could give birth to. Thirteen years later, Ishmael is now 13 years old. Abraham is 99 years old. And God, in mercy, appears to him again, repeats the promise, doubles down on the idea of multiplying his descendants, gives him the new name Abraham. He's not just a father of many, but now a father of a multitude, and he still doesn't have the son of promise. In fact, Abraham even says to God, Oh, let Ishmael live before you. Basically, please let him be the child of promise. And God says, no, Isaac will be the one. God names Isaac. Abraham learned a lesson that we all need to learn. God's promises come only by his power. God was not going to recognize naturally conceived Ishmael as the son of promise. Salvation is by grace and not works. We cannot get the promised inheritance by any effort of our own. Here's Abraham trying to get the child of promise in his own way. We cannot get salvation promised by our own works. Ishmael illustrates a legalistic human effort. Isaac illustrates the product of God's sovereign and supernatural provision. Galatians 4.28 tells us believers are like Isaac, children of promise. And in this picture of Abraham's life, we see a picture of salvation. We see a picture of grace. He is justified instantly, Genesis 15. He is sanctified progressively. God's grace is sufficient in spite of Abraham's sin. His strength is made perfect in our weakness. Ours is a God-centered faith. Ours is a God-dependent, God-sustained faith. We saw last week that with God, it's promise made, promise kept. You see the unilateral covenant in Genesis chapter 15. God appears as a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch and he makes this unilateral covenant to all of him with no help from anyone else because our salvation is all of God with no help from us. And then you get to verse 18 in chapter four. Look at that with me. In hope, Abraham believed against hope. That's a striking thing to hear. Abraham literally hoped against hope he believed when there was no human reason to believe that is the essence of saving faith it depends on almighty god and i think there's great assurance for us here a great encouragement for all who believe that solely by god's grace can we believe the gospel that solely by god's grace can we rest in the gospel that solely by God's grace can we rejoice in it. And that solely by God's grace can we even live the gospel. We can do so unashamed, uncondemned by sin. Romans 8, 1, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And unconformed to the world, which is our biggest struggle. You should be fully assured that salvation is fully assured. That's what we're hearing. Today we're looking at fully assured part two. We'll look at verses 19 to 25. And our outline really comes from Abraham's life. It comes from these verses. And in its four quick points, Abraham, number one, did not weaken in faith. 
Number two, he did not waver in unbelief. Number three, he grew strong in faith. And number four, he gave glory to God. We're going to follow that right through the passage. Look with me first at this first point, verse 19. Abraham did not weaken in faith. Verse 19 tells us he did not weaken in faith when he considered, literally he seriously thought about his own body, which was as good as dead. Sorry to all you hundred-year-olds out there. Um, That's the way it's put. His body was about as good as dead, or, and he's considering seriously the barrenness of Sarah's womb, here she is 90 years old. He robbed the cradle, I guess. Barrenness of Sarah's womb. She's not able to have children, but also she's beyond the age of childbearing. And here you have Abraham and Sarah. Their bodies are growing weaker by the day. And their faith is growing stronger by the day. He thought deeply about the situation. He considered it. He didn't do it for five minutes. This was like ten years or more. A long time. A lot of water under the bridge in his life. And God is still at work orchestrating human events. God knows. God is sovereign. God is working in his perfect timing. This is what you can be assured of. God holds all things together by the word of his power. God works all things after the counsel of his will. And so you look at uh, Genesis 17. I, I re- remember what I said is that you need to keep your bookmark in Romans 4, in Galatians 3, and also in Genesis chapters 15, 16, 17. Okay? And you're going to need to go to Hebrews 11 with me in a moment. But in Genesis 17, verse 17, Abraham gets the news about Isaac and he falls on his face and he laughs. And he says to himself, Shall a child be born to a man who's 100 years old? Shall Sarah, who was 90 years old, bear a child? Now we need to go to Hebrews chapter 11. Go to Hebrews chapter 11. We'll read verses 8 through 12. Here's this great chapter of faith. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith he went to live in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. Verse 11 This is not just about Abraham. This is about Sarah too, a woman of faith. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive even when she was past the age since she considered him faithful who had promised. Therefore, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants as many as the stars of heaven and as numerous as the grains of sand on the seashore. There had been a promise made. Descendants would be more numerous than the stars and than the sand. And that people would be redeemed. That they would have this covenant made that God made and they would have an inheritance, a God-centric promised inheritance. Also known as salvation. Also known as eternal life. It was initiated by God. It was sustained by God. 
And everyone who is of faith inherits this blessing. And Abraham's faith did not weaken. Number two, Abraham did not waver in unbelief. Verse 20. No unbelief made him waver. There was no distrust concerning the promise of God. He did not doubt because of unbelief. How can, how can Paul say this when you look through Genesis chapters 12 through 24 and you see all these victories and defeats in Abraham's life? You look at Abraham's life and you would come to the conclusion that he actually did waver. He questioned God about his promise, Genesis 15. He lied about who his wife Sarah was, Genesis 12. He tried to bring God's promise of a child in his own way, Genesis chapter 16. Not to mention the frequent trips down to Egypt, code word for sin in his life. Abraham did not always live his faith. Neither do I, neither do you. Abraham did not have perfect obedience. Neither do I, neither do you. Abraham's faith floundered. So does mine, so does yours. But it never failed. Why did it never fail? Because his faith was not something of his own making. His faith was a gift from God. The God-centered faith. He did not waver in unbelief. How is this so? Because Paul is not tracking Abraham's entire life. He's giving us a snapshot biography and he's showing us the basic pattern and direction of Abraham's life. Do you see that? It's an upward trajectory of trust in God, not doubt. He did not waver. He persisted in faith. Number three, Abraham grew strong in faith. Still in verse 20, he grew strong in his faith. The Bible tells us. It was fully assured that God was able to do what he had promised. And this is the idea of full assurance not coming from Abraham's abilities. His faith was a genuine gift from God. If you have genuine faith, you cling to God's promise no matter what you know, typhoon of faith-testing trials hits your life. Faith clings to God's promise despite any circumstances that come against it. Here is Abraham who grows strong in faith. We're still in verse 20. Look at the fourth point. Abraham gave glory to God. He grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. Verse 20 says, he gave glory to God. But look at the phrase. He grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. There's a key there. There's a connection there. In verse 21, he was fully convinced. He was 100% sold, absolutely assured that God was able to do what he had promised. He gave glory to God. God-centered faith gives glory to God. Now, in my office, I've got a big stack of books, a big stack of Romans commentaries that I've been enjoying and being challenged by and things like that as I'm studying these passages every week. And Thomas Schreiner wrote a really good commentary on Romans that I'm greatly enjoying. And he was talking about how Abraham, by faith, acknowledged God's glory 
by confessing that God had the ability to carry out his promises as the resurrecting sovereign God. The basic sin of human beings that we see in Romans chapter 1 is that the, the failure to give glory to God, worshiping the creature rather than the creator. And here's what Schreiner says. He says, faith glorifies God because it says that life must be lived in complete dependence on him. Ultimate worship of God is not to work for him, but trust he will fulfill his promises. Abraham is questioned in Genesis 18, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he hears this, at the appointed time I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah shall have a son. Will you glorify God as you believe the promises of God? God's unilateral, self-fulfilling promise, it's the best thing ever. God is over all. He is sovereign. He is almighty. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. And his unilateral, self-fulfilling promise is the best thing ever for your soul. Because in his provided salvation, everything is provided. It's an all-inclusive, eternal provision. Verse 20, Abraham became strong in faith. Key part here, he became strong in faith. This is a passive tense. He was strengthened in his faith. His was a God-centered faith, in a vision of God of the impossible, a confidence that he could bring him the promise about, learns obedience through the Ishmael saga, right? Puts the spotlight on God who brings forth life from the dead in regeneration and keeps his promises. And that's why in verse 22 it says his faith was counted to him as righteousness. We are now quoting Genesis 15, 6 again. This is Paul's favorite Old Testament Bible verse. Paul's theology was grounded in that one verse. Genesis 15, verse 6. The reason why? Because the gospel is grounded in that one verse. Abraham believed the good news. So did Moses. So did David. There has only been one way of salvation since the fall in the garden. By grace through faith in the Redeemer. All the Old Testament saints who believed, they believed in the coming Christ. We, this side of the cross, believe in the finished work of Christ. There has only been and there will only ever be one way of salvation until the end of time. Revelation tells us this is an everlasting gospel. The only way to be right with God is through Jesus Christ, trusting in that one seed, Jesus, in whom all who believe are blessed. And now we're in the arena once again of this principle of uh, reckoning, of imputation, of God counting to your account the righteousness of Christ. Where he does not count your sin against you, He counts Christ's righteousness to your credit. And it's solely by grace. There is no work on our part. We receive it through faith. We believe the promises of God. We are fully assured. And and here you see Abraham being used as an example to declare that salvation is by grace through faith and not in any way by works on our part. 
Sadly, that truth is still debated and denied today. I don't want to bash anyone, but this doctrine of justification by faith is debated and denied. It's debated and denied by Catholics and cults and confused Christians. There is a necessary point about the gospel being made from Genesis chapter 15 verse 6 because Genesis was giving the gospel. Galatians 3 says very clearly, the scriptures preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. If you think about what Paul was doing in Galatians 3, he was confronting errors of of a small yet noisy set of Jewish believers that wanted to teach Gentile Christians they needed to become Jews in order to become Christians. It's a false gospel they were were giving out. It, It was eliminating grace. Faith is the instrument of justification. And these Judaizers, as they were known, and other works righteousness folks who are faulty in their understanding, they're concerned with outward man-centered actions rather than inner God-centered transformation. And there is no room for a professing believer to compromise this in any way. There is no middle ground on the gospel. We are to have no fellowship with those who, who promote a false gospel. This pseudo-Christian form of Phariseeism. You should know, if you're a professing believer, you should know you come to Christ through faith alone. If you have trusted in the finished work of Christ, you are a part of God's family by faith alone. You didn't do anything to get there. It is a very simple point. This is so foundational to our faith. We we should never blend truth with error. There is no room for compromise on this. Galatians 1 tells us the proponents of a false gospel are cursed. Now look with me at verses 23 to 25. Because we see something very significant here. We see that just as Abraham did not weaken in faith or waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith and gave glory to God, so should we. This is very personal. I don't think there's probably any better statement that can be made about us. This should be put on our tombstones. He or she grew strong in faith and gave glory to God. Grow as you give glory to God. Verse 23 tells us the words And then you have quotation marks. The words, it was counted to him. Now it's quoting Genesis 15. The words were not written for his sake alone. The very words of scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scriptures inspired by God and profitable. They weren't written just for Abraham, verse 24, but for us. Us who believe. Who's the us here? It will be counted to us who believe. For us who believe in him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord. These words apply to us as well. Now a lot of us might be tempted to say, well, you know, I've been sinning, sinning so badly. And I really do think that maybe God is reconsidering his choice of me because it's just so egregious. And all I can tell you is this, if you're a professing believer 
and you're not high-handedly trying to go against God on a daily basis, but you do see yourself slipping and falling, that the badness of your sin does not exclude you from the beauty of mercy. Remember the quote from Psalm 32, verses 1 and 2, that is found in Romans 4, 7, and 8? It's like David's version of Genesis 15, 6. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one against whom the Lord will not count his sins. There you've got the unimputed sin and the imputed righteousness. God justifies the ungodly who trust in Christ. And you may look around and you might see some Christians that are just, you know, not living really well, and you're like, how could that person be getting into heaven? <laughs> and you could even see some non-Christians who are more moral and upright and all that, and I don't know. All I know is this. Christians should want to please God. Christians should not want to do anything to, to go against the gospel. And I also know that someone who's a Christian takes their sins to Christ and gets forgiveness in Christ. You know what David prayed in Psalm 25, verse 11? I love this. He prays to God, and he says, for your name's sake, pardon my sin, because it is great. We use the term great like, wow, this is great. He's not using it this way. He's saying, my sin is weighing me down. My sin is a great burden. My sin is sinking me. Lord, for your name's sake, Forgive my sin. That's the heart of a true believer. God is a God of grace. So don't shrink back from trusting Christ. Be encouraged to come to him without delay. If you're not a believer, today is the day, this very moment. Put your faith in Jesus Christ. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. It is so true that we struggle mightily with the temptation to work ourselves into God's good graces. And it's like we have a billion dollars in the bank and we act like we're broke. It's like a person who's fully loved and accepted who, who feels like they're hated and unaccepted. Oh, it's a warped view. We think, don't we, that God is often just putting up with us and that he doesn't really like us so much. But do you remember what we saw around about Christmas from Zephaniah chapter 3, verse 17, which I called the John 3.16 of the, of the Old Testament? That God rejoices over us? That's a hard teaching for us to accept, but it is true. That he is quiet in his love, the idea that he is not accusing us, but he's assuring us, and he's loving us. If you're a believer today, you know what this means for you? It means that you are already fully accepted in Christ. You are fully secure in Him. You're fully safe forever, even if you wrongly think that God has somehow left the door open for you to be stolen or thrown away or kicked off the team. I'll tell you what corrects us. John chapter 10, verse Verses 27 to 29. That's what corrects our 
faulty thinking. He says, my sheep hear my voice. Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life. They will never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. No one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. There's some pretty strong hands there. And if you're a believer today, if you truly want to love the Lord and please the Lord, you aren't trying to make the team. You're already on the team. No reason to be anxious. No reason to be nervous. Just relax and be yourself and do what Psalm 100 verse 2 says. Serve the Lord with gladness. Serve him with gladness. I know some of you are wrecked with guilt over not believing God when you should have. You're wrecked with guilt over not believing God when you should have? Then go to him for mercy. Give, give God your Ishmael. Trust him to make good out of your mess. I love what J.I. Packer said in his book, Knowing God. There is tremendous relief in knowing that God's love to me is utterly realistic, based at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me, so that no discovery now can disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself. We know. Do we not? We know how many lapses we go through how many faith lapses we go through. And there is a way to minimize those lapses. There is a way to trust God more. And the secret is it found in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. And it's, it's saying the exact same thing as what Abraham's life illustrates, by the way. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight on the sin that so easily clings to us. And let us run with endurance the race set before us, this Christian life, looking to Jesus. It's three words, looking to Jesus. You know, fixing your eyes on Jesus. That's the answer right there. Jesus is the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising its shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Looking to Jesus, what does that mean? How do we get our, our minds around that? Looking to Jesus means believing Jesus. Believing Jesus. Just like in the Old Testament when they looked at the serpent, they would live where to look to Jesus with spiritual eyes. And we do that by banking on the promises of God found in his word. We do that by clinging to the faithful word. That's the objective standard that God has given us to measure everything by. I love this phrase, and I don't even know who said it, but Abraham trusted the bare word of God. That's what you see in verse 21. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He believed God would do what he had promised. So faith in Christ is not just thinking about him, it's trusting his word. When there is nothing else to go on. Let's say you're getting advice from even fellow Christians that don't seem to match up with the word, it almost seems to contradict the word. Or maybe your feelings 
are somehow seeming to contradict the word. You look at what God has said and let that define you. It's objective truth versus subjective feelings. This is how your faith grows. You get to know God more. You get to know more of his glory as you act on his promises and his word, even when it's difficult. When you're going through this difficult time and you remember the gospel. And remember, this life of faith is not pretty or perfect. And we want it to be both. And there is glory to be had in, in, in reveling in the beauty and the perfection of God in Christ and the gospel. But this life of faith is not perfect, but it holds up. Why does it hold up? Because it holds on to what God says he will do. There are a lot of people who they experience joy and victory and they're like, wow, I am being a really good boy or a really good girl and God likes me more now. And there's a lot of people who have hardship and failures and challenges and they think, wow, God is mad at me and this is why these things are going wrong. Here's what faith, here's what this imperfect life of faith looks like. Where you take your joys and your hardships and your failures and your victories and your challenges and you see them as ways to increase your attachment to God who keeps his promises. The moment you trust in his promises, your faith is counted as righteousness. And I love the fact that these words are not just for Abraham, but for us. We believe him who raised Jesus from the dead. We trust God that he promised that Christ's death and resurrection was for our sins and were for our justification. Verse 25. Abraham believed the promise of a descendant. We believe in what God says that descendant did. Believing God glorifies God. How do you give glory to God? In the midst of this life of faith, you believe God. You honor God by trusting Jesus who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And within that is just pure gospel glory. It's just, it's just pure gospel glory. It's a reminder to spur us on, I think, in persevering faith in the midst of trials that God restores, God saves, God justifies, God sanctifies, God glorifies. And I want to mention this as I close. I want to mention to you, as you go your way today, that this is not just some you know, high-level, wow, those are some amazing truths for me to cling to. This is street-level stuff. Because God's grace works in you at the level of your real life. 1 Corinthians 15.10, here's one example. Paul is talking about his work as an apostle and he basically says it was all the grace of God in me. And at the same time he says, and I put forth a lot of effort. Philippians 2, 12 and 13 says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling because it is God who is at work in you to will and do his good pleasure. Well, of course you need to do things. You gotta live and obey and honor God and wanna live to please God. But not to be made right with God. Do nothing, just believe. And once that is settled, you can now obey. You love because he first loved you. Colossians 1.27, I love this. Christ in you, the hope of glory. 
Colossians 1.28, Him we proclaim, Christ we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Verse 29, here's what Paul says, And this is what I do, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. And you know what this tells you and me? You know what this tells us? It tells us that actually today in our life, it matters. Today matters in your life. Righteousness matters. Objective truth matters. Your marriage matters. Your singleness matters. Your purity matters. Your family time in the word and prayer matters. Your choices matter. Your words matter. Your posts matter. Your clicks matter. Your likes matter. Your every move and motive matters because your life in Christ matters. God is at work in you. And we ought never to forget how good the good news is. Jesus died for our sins according to the scriptures. He was, ro- he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. We have those guaranteed promises of God. Our inheritance, the indwelling Holy Spirit, the pledge, the guarantee of our inheritance according to the scriptures. Fully assured. And Lord, thank you that you want us to rely on your promise-keeping power that we would have strong confidence in your power to do what you have promised to do entirely by grace, that we would let go of every shred of our works in which we trust, knowing that our salvation rests 100% secure on Christ's finished work. And because of that, Lord, we just throw ourselves deeply into serving you in every aspect of life, to grow strong in faith and give glory to you. We pray in Christ's name, amen.